namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammā samputtassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammā samputtassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammā samputtassa uttam dhammam sankham sam new prime minister may he do well huh? I was thinking of Jimmy Carter and how his presidency was ruined by that Iran hostage thing. So good luck, please, Paul. May he have good fortune. Now this is Bika Kema. He's the youngest monk. He just ordained two weeks ago. This isn't a coming out party, I mean. <laughs> Nice companion. And I've explained our, our system before, but just some of you who are not familiar with this, if someone wants to ordain in our tradition. Ordination itself, I, I use the word, I don't really like it, because it has a lot of priestly connotations in my mind. I don't know about your mind. Because we're not priests, we're just being trying to figure out this teaching and be free from suffering as you are. So the, the training of a, of a monastic is is coming into uh, an order uh, in which there is a certain lifestyle and that lifestyle is one that the Buddha recommended and that lifestyle is one of training mind and body and living in community and so on and so it's more like being accepted into a community more like becoming uh, a part of a guild that's the analogy I often use and so the apprenticeship in our monastic guild as it were is quite long so there's uh, usually like if a, if a man asks us that, that they're interested in, in being a, a monk, we say, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and we wait, because we've seen enthusiasm wane into hatred. <laughs> and so the first, the first flush of love, we don't believe in. <laughs> and so usually a person will stay for a few months as a, as a layman, and then if they feel that our community uh, is some a place where they could develop practice and if we feel they are of character that can be harmonious with us then we say okay we'll <coughs> give you a chance for a year and the candidate then takes the training of an anagarika which is uh, anagarika means homeless one and they then take dependence on a teacher and that's for one year, they wear white, you, know, you have seen, he used to be called Sean, he used to wear white. Um, and that's a one-year commitment. And in that year, uh, and we all, what we do with that is we say, it's not a lifetime. It's not a lifetime, but it is one year. So if after six months you feel, ah, oh, I don't want to do this, you say, yeah, it's only six more months. So there's a, there's a sense of a, a commitment, but not something which is eternal. It's quite helpful to look at doubt and not liking because you can't like something all the time. It's impossible. And so um, Bhikkhu Kema did that very, very well. Then we invited him to be a, what we call a samanera. And samanera is called the, the going forth. And that's when you take up the brown robes. And that is a sort of increase in the number of restrictions, really, and, and renunciations that one takes on. And it is a sort of looking at, well, do I really want to do this as a, as a long-term, maybe as a lifestyle, as a vocation? And after one year of that, 
then um, the candidate can ask, can I take up the bhikkhu ordination? Can I become a bhikkhu and join the community? And uh, we, we discuss amongst ourselves, and we say, yeah, it's, it's a good one. Let's go for it. <laughs> or, no way. <laughs> we do both. We do both. Uh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a particular kind of life. It's not suited for everyone. Uh, and and uh, Bhikkhu Kane was a very diligent summoner, so uh, when he asked for the going forth, I was quite overjoyed. He's a, he's, a, he's a very good companion. And so now he's taken a commitment to uh, be uh, under my training and the monastic training for five years. So there's a, it's not a lifetime ordination. A, a monk can leave any time, so it's not a lifetime thing. But the intention, the intention in the mind is to, okay, yeah, I've done this for two years. I like the lifestyle. Yeah, maybe I could, I could do. Maybe I could be a lifer. But the intention is like to be with the teacher for five years. And so that's a seven-year commitment, seven-year commitment. And then if after after the five years, the the candidate's still a monk, because many many monks disrobe, which is fine. Uh, then after that, the monk has it's called a, a majima monk or a middle monk or like a journeyman in, in, in the guild system where he can then uh, visit other teachers, um, leave the monastery, uh, try out other places and so on. And then I was joking that in 20 years time you can start a monastery in Toronto or something. <laughs> but it's, it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment and not, not everyone is suited to this life. Uh, but those who are like I've been, I've been so fortunate. It's such a good life, such an interesting life. So I wish you well. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a good, nice to have him with us. Um, this year, I've been, I've been, as many of you heard, I've been learning to do joinery and stuff, playing in the workshop. I've got a, a really nice situation now where I, I've got my delegation skills down so much that I don't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> So I try to get the younger monks teaching and having tea with the lay guests, so on and so forth. And I just what I end up is either meditate or go to the workshop. And and much of my and I'm a contemplative, so I'm always observing how the mind works, how life works, and, and I contemplated a lot the whole thing of learning. Many of the talks I've given this year around learning, and this is goes contemplating the mind of the learn of the learner, the attitude of the learner. And, and like this morning, I was sharpening some chisels, and I've got a new block plane, and trying to figure out how to use it on some end grain, and sharpening it, and and, and so on, and, and just watching how, when I don't know how to do something, and I'm not just trying to get something done, but I really, I don't know how to do this. Then I really observe. So, so I'm, I'm, I've got a new um, jig for getting the right angle on, on a chisel. So I donated that. In fact, this workshop, by the way. <laughs> it's the best workshop in Ontario. <laughs> um, so this new jig, and I'm just trying, so how do I do this? Oh, too much. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What kind of paper? And I just see that, well, how does... When, I'm a, when I have the learner's attitude, I see cause and effect. I make a mistake a bit, well, yeah, it's, it's leaning too much to that side, leaning too much to that side. And it's actually very calming, isn't it? 
Yeah. Of course, I have the luxury of char you know, of sharpening chisels for an hour in the morning. And who has that luxury <laughs> these days? But anyway, it's just just those just contemplating the learner's mind. Like like let's say if you if you um, so you have property somewhere, a rural property near Perth, and you have a lot of acre, you know, let's say you have an acre of land, and uh, you have you know, maybe a football field of grass you have to mow, and you decide to to buy a, a sit-on lawnmower. It's just too much to walk around. You buy yourself a, a nice lawnmower. It's a bit expensive, a bit over your budget, but it's a good machine. And you get this machine, and it's red. It has to be red. <laughs> All good machines are red. And you have this thing now, and you really value it, don't you? And this costs you a lot of money, your budget's tight. So first of all, you value it. And then you look at the instructions, you talk to the guy at the shop, and then you start to play around with it. And you read how you use the gears, and how you set the heights of the blade, and be careful of the rocks. And, and so each time, you know, each motion, you get learning how to use this. And you get a result, and that's not right. You get a result, and that's good. And it's a very, um, it's a very calming and informative process, isn't it? And that's the learner's attitude. Um, and then, you know, after a while, you know how to use this thing, and you're running around and getting it done. And then you start to get into the mind state of getting it done. And then you've got, like, gosh, I'm leaving half an hour. It takes you, it takes 45 minutes to get through that. So I'll just go. So the mind no longer has the learner's attitude. It has the get rid of it attitude, get it done attitude, which much of our culture has. And then, of course, you go over a rock. <laughs> right? You notice the rock. And you hear this horrible sound, ka-ching. And your heart's broken. <laughs> and then you just kind of kick it, swear, and you just walk away from it in disgust. And the next day you get the manual out, flip it over, look at the blade, and you're back to the learner's mind. And you're looking at the manual, you're looking at the blades, you haven't got the money to send it to the shop, okay, what do I do? You haven't got the right size wrench, you get a wrench. And you're learning all the time, yeah, and, you, and you maybe fix it, you feel quite accomplished. Oh, I fixed that. That's good. And you get the learner's mind again. Now, there's something about that learner's mind, and in Zen they call it the beginner's mind, Zen mind, beginner's mind, remember that book, was it Suzuki, was it? Yeah. That kind of, that kind of learner's attitude, it's, 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 uh, it's refreshing, it's calming, and it's, it's, uh, it's edifying, it teaches, isn't it? To, to apply that all the time seems impossible, because we do become experts. Like a cart, like a good joiner, a good musician, they become experts. But I think there's something about craft or music or expertise, when it's done well, there's something of the beginner's presence, of the learner's presence in the work they do. I, I've never played music, but I imagine like a, an accomplished violinist couldn't just play the piece to get it done. I mean, this wouldn't make sense. They'd have to play the piece to play the piece. It would get done. But as soon as they were trying to get it done, of course, squawk, squawk, squawk. So that, that learner's mind is, is something that we sometimes that we don't apply much in life because our life becomes a kind of habit. And just especially modern life, it's like there's so much to do. So much to do. So we habitually get stuff done and run here and run there. And much of if you read the kind of classic Buddha's ideas, whether it's in Zen or Theravada, a lot of it is like 
just doing stuff carefully, just learning how to slow down and do stuff carefully. And you know the cliches of washing the dishes mindfully and so on and so forth. There are cliches, but it's true. And somehow to bring in that, that learner's mind, how, how do you wash a dish? Well, you're not going to do that. Just got to get it done. But that whole mind of always getting stuff done is a very unpeaceful mind. And I don't even think it's that efficient. I don't, I don't find that. When, I, when I'm in the workshop and, and, I, and I'm getting frustrated by, by some piece that I'm working and then I look at the clock and it's like half an hour before lunch and then, then I do terrible work because I'm trying to get it done. And I don't, I don't pause and just, no, wait, 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 you're, this, you're not, you don't know what you're doing here. And, you know, with some of the machinery you have, I, I just walk away in that mindset because I could, you know, end up like that one digit going. I did actually once, uh, this thumb, I don't know if you notice, it did it I put this through a table saw. It's stiff and a wee bit shorter. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> And that's because I was just like totally um, trying to get something done. So, so that's just kind of how did that? So, how would that learner's mind, contemplating, how would that apply to the Buddhist teaching on the form of the truths? Because that's the sort of model of teaching that I always like to return to. So, I was uh, uh, I was with someone. I came for a visit. A father of a, of, a, of a guest that's come to the monastery, you know, both parents are there, and kind of check, checking us out, seeing if we had two heads or something. something like and um, I was talking to the father, and he's a smoker. And uh, I talked to him, but then he went out for a smoke, and I was talking to him in the hallway again, so we were like this close, and that, that pungent smell of a cigarette, powerful, isn't it? And yet my parents used to smoke two packs a day each. When, as an aside, when Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah was kept, his body was kept for a year before they cremated him, which is a tradition in Thailand, so the whole country can pay respects. I told my mother that, and she said, how was he preserved? And I said, well, they, they wrapped the body in tobacco. And my mother said, you see, smoked meat lasts longer. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I'm in the hall with this guy. <laughs> he's a uh, bloody steak. And I could, you know, just the beginner's mind, or the learner's mind, okay, what's the problem? Like, I could see, I didn't like it, but did I have to suffer? And he's a very nice man. And I like that whole thing of like smoking now. It's one of the one of the allowable things you can hate in the world, a smoker. Right? It's sort of culture allowed to look at a smoker as a complete imbecile. <laughs> Isn't it? It's like yeah, you, you, you know, our culture allows us to hate people. You know, in the extreme of course is racism and so on. But there's always like the scapegoat or something someone to get but I was just watching that there's just a smell in my face and the pungent smell of it. And, but I just got, went back to the learner's mind and said, so what's the problem? I don't like it. But he's a nice man. And, and I, you know, in my mind wanted to go to, you idiot, <laughs> kind of <laughs> judgment, you know, what we do. Said, no, no, no. And I focused more on just on the, 
on the conversation, first of all, and that he's a good man, and tried to open my heart, and so it's just unpleasant. That's all it is. It's just unpleasant. I just kept learning, learning about the unpleasantness in my mind wanting to go to aversion. And it's a kind of learning process. It's just like, once again, I'm learning the same lesson of don't attach. It's just unpleasant. Don't attach, it's unpleasant. And I didn't. And I had a nice conversation with him. And then I opened the doors. Because <laughs> it was such a strong smell. And we talked about it too. And he said, he's just addicted to it. Poor guy. He's cost him a fortune and so on. But that's kind of, our life is filled with things like acrid smoke in the face, isn't it? It's constantly going on. And to, to come to that learner's mind, the expert's mind, to me, the, the, not the expert, but the, the heedless mind is the mind that just dismisses things, or you shouldn't be like that. You should be different. They should be different. It's kind of a, a judgment on life rather than an awakening to life. And, and Buddhism is very much an awakening to the way things are. This is what's just watching that, just that sense of, this is aversion, aversion feels this way, not reacting to it. It's really actually quite peaceful, actually, just feeling the acrid smoke. It was not a problem, right? That's easy, that's easy, but it's a very much an example of how, how can I bring up this freshness of mind, this, this learner's mind, and apply it to all aspects of stress and suffering that I have. The stress and suffering is going on all the time, inwardly. I, I, I looked at a, uh, I was looking at what the papers were saying about this new prime minister. Of course, they try to trivialize it and compare him to Justin Bieber. <laughs> anyway, that's what they do. But, but there was an article in Guardian, and, uh, and it was, uh, it was uh, a mockery of, of Harper. Five jobs that Harper could get. <laughs> one of which was to sing in a band <laughs> and I started to read it and I said I'm not going there I'm not going to kick a guy when he's down it's too easy isn't it and yet that's, that's, what, that's what this that's what this thing was drawing me into a kind of um, smart ass journalist you wonder if he could have done that job it was a very difficult job uh, and although politically, you know, I have my views about all this, I said, well, wait a minute, this is suffering. My mind moving towards ridiculing another human being, do I really want to go there? Is that who I want to become? And I was tempted to read the whole article. Well, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the, I got to the first one, what were the other four? <laughs> <laughs> so it's certainly fun, you know, in, in some but I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. This mind is precious. So I go back to the kind of idea of the lawnmower. This mind is really, really precious. And, and it's like, it's cost me a lot to get here. <laughs> a lot of work on this mind. Why pollute it? Why, why put energies into it? Why put suggestions into it which will alienate me more with life? Because if I'm dismissive or cynical or... or uh, I just, you know, kick the guy when he's down. I'm going to do it to someone else. Because that's the, the, the pattern that I'm setting in my mind. Right? That's the pattern. Now, this might sound kind of very naive and, and, and so on, but it's not naive. I think it's, it's like, I think you can be still streetwise, but not cruel. 
I think you can be street streetwise and fearless. I think you can be streetwise and um, not cynical. I think it's quite. We have a few examples. Nelson Mandela, the greats of the world. And why do we respect those beings so much? Because they're in a very complex political situation, and they they don't go there. They don't go there. And what we're doing in Buddhism is is by I think by protecting our minds from going. We're, we're taking responsibility for us all the time and, and moving to the wholesome and not the unwholesome. It's not meant kind of, it's not weak. And people ask me sometimes, they say, well, what about, you know, what if someone oppresses you? What do you do? The Im- implication being that kindness is weak. But Nelson Mandela wasn't weak. Uh, Dalai Lama's not weak. I know my teacher, such a child, he wasn't weak. Kachin Sumedho, they're not weak. But they're centered. They're centered and they're actually they're fearless. They're kind of in, uh, very very open, but not from not 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 fear ridden. So compassion, kindness, these things, which can sound very sentimental, I don't think I think they're huge strengths in the human heart. Because when I have when I have a centeredness in myself and I have confidence and clarity, and then things come at me, I can I can respond from that. If I've just developed like cynical attitudes and smart, you know, smart-ass kind of opinions about politics and I just come up with that, a very weak argument I could put to people. And people would see that, wouldn't they? They would see that. So to kind of really value the mind, that's important, isn't it? To really see that, that our inner world um, is, is a space we live in and, and that space is, is not to be... Not... Yeah, to be very careful. We have we have this idea of of of, uh, of hideotipa in, in Buddhism, the idea of fear of the consequences of doing something unwholesome. And it's not fear in, in the kind of emotional sense that I'm I'm afraid of giving public talks or something like that. It's more like if you go down this road, you're going to get consequences. Don't go there. Be careful. And then he, that's Hidi. And Otapa is more like the sense of conscience. You know, when I, when I, when I, when I feel I've, I've hurt someone, then there's that sense of remorse. And that's a very important voice. That's not guilt. Guilt is just ego. But remorse, when, I, you know, when I've really slandered someone or something, I say, mm, that's not good. Don't go that direction. And that's one of the ways we talk about protecting the mind, kind of living, living a life of, of, of goodness. And again, that's not that's not manzy pamsy weak. It's actually quite quite strong because there you get a lot of integrity, a lot of self worth. I know, like Ajahn Chah, I had this great fortune of living with him, and he was the most powerful man I ever met. An amazing man, really powerful, but not from a place of ego, from a place of being in his culture and being fearless. He's totally unafraid of his monks. The stories we tell about him giving hours and hours and hours of talks. I mean, no one's interested. <laughs> Sixty monks after an hour. Is anyone interested? I doubt it. And we're all probably the daggers. <laughs> and he just keeps talking. <laughs> really, and and in, in a way which wasn't torturous, but it came from a strength and a confidence and, and, and a fearlessness. But it was always compassionate. 
and this is what I've I've seen in like like these the Dalai Lama or people like that the tremendous compassion like when you meet the Dalai Lama he just just whoa and yet you think yeah he's very ordinary yeah that's we should all be that way and, and so I think what I what I'm pointing to here is that some of the ideas that that Buddhist Compassion, or any compassion, <laughs> compassion, not Buddhist compassion, compassion or kindness or generosity, that these are somehow sentimental things or weaknesses, but they're not. They're quite, they're quite strength, they're quite, quite strong things in the heart. Because they also reduce the whole sense of alienation. Because when I, when I function and I can bring forth, like, like let's say this little article in The Guardian, you know, by, by not going there, and by going to the sense of... Now, I, I was talking with Peter in the car about spreading metta to Mr. Harper. Now, that's the way sometimes we talk about practices of loving-kindness, but it, to me it seems a bit, to say the least, artificial. You know, put Mr. Harper on your shrine, right? And bow to him. You know, we don't do that. But when, when there is the perception of a Mr. Harper... And that perception then leads to idiot, fool, I hate you. Then that perception is what we have to wake up to. And this is what we're looking at in terms of, of the mind, is the flow of consciousness. When the flow of consciousness hits something which is unskillful, it's not about Mr. Harper, because Mr. Harper is just a perception in my mind. That's all it is. It's a construct that I've picked up from my left-wing liberal readings. I don't read right-wing stuff. If I read right-wing stuff, I have a whole different set of perceptions. So I realize that there is no real Mr. Harper. There isn't, there isn't. If I was a political person, yes, I'd have to, you know, if I was on what side or other. But for my mind, what happens in my mind, when that perception comes in my mind, if it's automatically associated with aversion, with hatred, with judgment, and so on, then I have to somehow unravel that and not go there not go to that reaction. Or, every time any kind of perception related to that kind of a person comes up, my mind will go to aversion. Because that's the way my mind has been conditioned. So in, in the training of the mind, we're trying to get out of the storyline and narrative. We need the storyline and narrative. And I am glad we have a new Prime Minister and so on. <laughs> but but I, we're always doing two things. We're living our social life. We're trying to be responsible in our social life. We're, we're engaging with political issues or, or you know, economic, whatever you want, and voting and, and doing all that to the best of our ability and, and critiquing people in a strong way if we need to and so on and so forth. But also we're protecting the mind and developing the mind so that we begin to, we begin to come to that place of, of peace and stillness, which the Buddha said, and we've all realized, uh, it's possible. And the Buddha says there's an island, there's a refuge, there's a sanctuary, there's peace, there's the other shore. And that's a possibility we all have. And we, we touch it. We touch it all. I think, you know, you, you see the, like the beautiful maple tree and, and the sun shines on the maple tree and your mind is stopped for a second. Your mind's no longer trying to get the lawn done, right? Your mind is just stopped. And we think it's the maple tree, but it's no, it's the mind. Maple trees all, you know, the maple trees. It's your mind. It's your mind to stop. Or you see a vulture uh, 
cruising over the fields looking for a sandwich. Directing <laughs> <laughs> sandwiches for him. And just, just this kind of the flight of it, you know, it stops your mind. You know, or Pike Lake, or you know, all the, the forms of nature, or a, or a child's delightful laugh. Where, where my mind just stops for a second, it comes to stillness. It's no longer caught up in all the contingent and the kind of pressures of life. And we know this. And we think it's the child, we think it's the place, we think it's the tree, we think it's the bird. But it's not, it's our mind. Our mind has this, this, this deep, deep stillness which is possible. And so to protect the mind is important. To, 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 to guard the mind is important. To, to, to prevent it from going in places which will lead it to more and more confusion is very, very important. And how can we do that? Well, in each moment, we need to come to that awakened state. That's, that's our, our kind of um, bread and butter, isn't it? Just that awakened state. So when I ask you in a, in a sitting, listen to sound, let go of thought. Listen to sound, let go of thought, just listen. Then you're beginning to incline your mind to the stillness. So if I, if I, if I see, if I, if I then um, value that, then the things I read, I have to be very, very careful of. Things I consume, I have to be very, very careful of. And yet I'm interested in the world. You know, I'm interested in, in our culture. I'm interested in my own history. So I'm not going to just stick my head in a Zafu for the rest of my life. <laughs> what an image. <laughs> but, but rather, how can I engage in, in the ordinaries of life and yet guard the mind, develops, you know, develop compassion, develop stillness, and yet know what the world is about. We can do that. I think we can. I think we can. And so this learner's mind, this mind which can always come back to to the way things are and see, well, what's my next step? And if you can, if I can apply that to the suffering of my life, to the confusion or the resentment or whatever, whatever's happened in the past, you know, whatever I've done or whatever has been done to me, in the, in any moment I can say, okay, how do you sharpen a chisel? How do I take this mind which is restless now, confused? What's my next step? Because you can only do one step at a time. What's my next step? Rather than, oh gosh, you know, I'm never going to get anywhere in this, or here I go, you know, no, what's my next step? And quite often it's just this recognition, well, right now, life is feeling this way. And then, and then from that sense of acceptance, shifting the mind constantly to the whole thing, to goodness. It's a practice of goodness. That's our method. So I found that quite interesting, you know, looking at that article about Mr. Harper. And, and in the past, I would have just gobbled it up. And I would have, you know, would have found, you know, most of our monks are apolitical, so I can't talk with anyone. But <laughs> They're wiser than me, I think. And so... I would have, you know, said, oh, you know what that's saying? I would have said that, wouldn't I? That's what our media does and so on. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a cost. There's a cost. And it's quite interesting to see. No, that's cruel. That's not kind. That's not a good thing to do. And so the result in the mind is from that, from that little step, is like one of self-worth. Whereas the other would not be one of self-worth. It would be just an increase in the already cynical tendencies I have. Which, which, you know, I've done that enough this lifetime. And, and these choices are you know, things we're always, we're always engaged in. Our, our busy lives, mm-hmm. lives are so busy, it's, it's hard to get that time to, 
be a beginner, but if you, if you start to make intentions towards attitudes, that's what we're doing. The idea of karma is the accumu- accumulated consequences of our intentions. The accumulated consequences are of our intentions, not past lives. Maybe that exists, I don't know. But just the accumulated consequences. So the, the consequence of me choosing not to go down that cynical route the accumulation of those, if I keep doing that, then cynicism doesn't rule my life. But vice versa, it will rule my life. And we can only take these little steps each time, but if we have that kind of, that humility of the learner, okay, I'm confused now, what do I do? What do I do now? What's my next step? And, that, and if you think about the learner, it's a kind of humility there, right? It's like, like when I'm not it's like the Ikea, the kind of idiot joinery. That <laughs> you take the Ikea box, you don't read the instructions. Right? And you feel like an idiot, because I haven't read the instructions. And it's the same with the beginner's mind. The beginner's mind, is the instructions are your life. And the main instruction is if you're suffering, you don't understand something. You've got to go back to the... <laughs> Back to the instruction book, and the instruction book and it says, Why are you making this a problem? What's the attachment? Why can't you just be silent? Why are you running why are you, you know, why are you running things through your head? And that's the instructions are your own suffering. That's that's and and, and the and, and the idea of the first noble truth is that the suffering has to be understood as a very humble idea. It's not a judgmental idea. It's a humble idea. So, wow, yeah. I'm not doing something right here. What can I do to alleviate suffering? How can I bring myself back to the silence of noticing the maple tree or the silence of a blue sky? How can I return to that, to my real home? Because that's our real home, it's that silent home. So may all politicians be seen suffering. <laughs> okay, I'll leave that for your reflection. Questions? Comments? Yes? Okay, so when talking about the news article, um, you decided to stop Yep. because you felt that cynicism was down the path. But would it be possible maybe to read it and extend compassion not only to Harper for having people view him in such a way, but also to the author for feeling sure. such suffering in his life? You could, yeah. Sure. As long as you're just looking at each mind state. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? It's, it's, a, it's an arduous practice, if you think about it. Every mind state has the potential to wholesome or unwholesome. Certainly, yeah. So it's not so much about the engagement with the objects of our reality, it's our intentions, where we're coming from. So it's not like, it's not quietism. You know, that's not, I'm not advocating some kind of Buddhist quietism where I never engage with anything all the time. That would be, uh, I mean, monks will go off in caves and so on, but sometimes their minds aren't so quiet anyway. But quietism is a kind of, negation or dismissal of, of conventional life. But that's not what we're saying. It's, you know, how can I engage in conventional life in a good way, in a wholesome way? Yeah. And each of us, I think, on that point, each of us has our 
um, limitations, right? So one person uh, doesn't get affected by things. Another person gets overwhelmed by things. They have to really protect themselves in those arenas. And that's the, that's the idea of sensory strain. We talk a lot, like one of the foundations of monastic life, uh, to, to the foundation, <laughs> sensory strain and contentment with little. And sensory strain can be just like so many things. It's not just about TV. It can be about just like engaging in certain ideas which can get someone really upset. And that's a kind of protecting of the mind. Some people are stronger. Uh, some people... Uh, and and to, to honor that, I think, is important. Really. I think I can take everything on. I was just talking to a, uh, a, a psychologist who, who deals a lot with um, uh, battered women. And uh, I just had the feeling, oh, this is too much for you, mate. You, you know, this is, this is overwhelming. That's... You know, just... So you, there's a kind of sense of like caring for the inner world. Right? That's important. Any others, really? Yes. You were talking about um, this fellow that you were interacting with who was a smoker and yeah. trying to keep your attention on focused on the conversation. Do you think there's a, any other ways of managing or coping with that when it's one's child who is engaging in potentially harmful activity? Um, you know, you want to engage with them without um, imposing on them, but also without keeping so much distance that you're not involved. Yeah, I've never had kids. Um, ideally, uh, it, this is a monk talking, so. <laughs> <laughs> In the ideal world. Um, it seems to me, if you're a parent, you have to lead. You can't, it's not, it can't be like totally democratic, right? Um, and you have to have enough wisdom to, to, to know that you are right. I don't think a child should be able to negotiate moral values to a, you know, a normal parent. Um, who has learned from life and seen experience. So I think there needs to be some sense of confidence and fearlessness. So if I'm approaching my child from my own fears, I'm already on the back, on the wrong foot. So I think like knowing your own mind that way seems to me important. Um, having, having the capacity to listen, hear where they're coming from, uh, understand that, but still have the strength to set boundaries and set limits and set uh, and do that in a strong and consistent way seems to me uh, you know, as I say this, I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> but uh, that to me, I, I just think of my own responsibilities in the monastery that if I if I'm relating to uh, a monk's problems and he's problematic in some way and I'm related from fear I want him to like me and I don't want him to leave and so on then then my whole discussion was compromised by that fear so first and foremost I have to know my own mind and then I have to know my own responsibility and so my responsibility as a senior monk is you know, it's defined your responsibility as a parent is defined and so to realize that too, that yeah, okay, I have, okay, I have responsibility. And what's my, my sense of responsibility based on? It has to be based on your values, 
So what are your values based on? Well, it have to be, in, from a Buddhist sense, on moral values, on, on values which, are, which include uh, liberality and generosity and altruism, things like that, but also restraint on harming. So if you're clear about those values in your own heart, your moral values, then the reasoning behind your, your uh, uh, engagement with your child comes from a good background, a good solid background. If the parent has shaky values, you know, if the parent's like going to the pub and getting drunk and then saying to the kid, you shouldn't smoke dope, <coughs> tricky, yeah, tricky. So, so uh, some kind of integrity, impeccability in your own heart, and then admitting you're human, I guess. So you know, you 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 try to tell your child not to get angry, and you got angry last week. I don't know how that works. That must be difficult. Um, so some sense of honesty about your own limitations. But it seems to me a parent has to be a parent. You have to kind of say no. There are boundaries and so on. Any parents here? <laughs> I feel very, um, a lot of trepidation when I, you know, I can only give my perspective from now. I actually, you know, when I, before I became a monk, I said, I'm too messed up to have kids. <laughs> How can I direct a little, little being when I, you know, I don't even understand my own mind? So it was never, never my vocation. Anything else? I'm sure you'll get lots of feedback after. <laughs> <laughs> Any others? Barbara? I have a question. I don't really know how to articulate, but when you were talking about the learner's mind, and giving the example of the chisel, and then the smoke, and they both have a kind of sensual or t- like tactile or mind kind of scent on the other dimension to them, so I could understand that sort of calming you could get from getting into a learner's mind. And and I was thinking about this because I was just before coming here working on my computer and trying to learn something I don't know how to do. And it was infuriating and I really hated it. And I love thinking, and so then I thought, well, it's tactile versus not tactile. But then I think I love thinking about philosophical ideas or something like that. So it's not that, but there's some things that when we go into are so kind of, the opposite of being in the world. And I don't know how to develop a learner's mind around that, I guess. To be honest, I'm glad I don't have to do any more administration. <laughs> I get away from that thing as much as possible, go to the workshop and sharpen sharp, which is a lot easier. But I think, from my, my sense of it, like one of our monks, several monks, who are, well, everyone's more knowledgeable than me about computers, but um, several monks have a good engineering background. They know how this thing works. So actually, their solving of the problem, I see they actually enjoy it, because they understand. But most of us don't know how it works. You know, we're coming from a whole set of preconditions which create, and then you, you're trying to actually fix something. You don't, re- like, to, 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 to fix a flat tire on your bike, it's, you understand it. But this we don't understand. So it has a kind of, to me, to me at least, it's just inherent confusion. I want to kick the thing, <laughs> right? And because I, I don't, I don't even know where to start. That, you know, so it's it, it's inherently very, very confusing. So I just go to chemical or someone. It's like, what help? <laughs> so that that's something about our, our society. It it hides it, it it almost prevents us from learning because it's become so 
technologically the expertise we have around economics or like try when this whole thing about when the, when the financial crisis what was it these derivatives or something yeah what were they called derivatives yeah I read several articles on that well I haven't used money for a while so that's a problem <laughs> <laughs> but you know I tried to get my head around what is money about like, I just could it was so confusing. So there's a lot of that in our in our culture now that, that is I think it is confusing unless you have an expert and, and if you feel confused just say it's not your fault. You know, that the, that the conditions have created confusion. And I don't you know, I don't suggest you then take up computer science, I think stick with literature. <laughs> but but realize that, 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 that when you enter into into realms which are not not decipherable like cars now. His son just got a BMW hot car. He took me to the Tim Hortons. He impressed everyone. Anyway, hasn't got a dipstick. You can't even measure the oil. It is a thing, but you can't, you can't touch it. So there's a lot in our culture like that. And, and it kind of emasculates us or, or, or kind of prevents us from... from Taking some ownership in the things we do. Whereas that's what I find with, with in the monastery, monks start to get, take ownership of building their own hut or they feel really quite connected. You're like cutting your grass, right? Even though you have to get it done, it's kinda of, you feel connected to the land and, and that. And that alienation is it's part of our culture, it's technological alienation. I don't know what you can do is that's why we go for walks in nature, don't we? Can you rise and things like that to get grounded again? All right.